New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to a shorthanded edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're talking dramatic results in the Premier League, Scottish heroes around Europe, Americans in action all over the place, and outfield players turned star goalkeepers. It was a busy weekend, uh, and here to break it down with me is a man who put notes in the running order for 11 games in total. Graham Ruffin, you are a lunatic, number one. We've been over this before. <laughs> How do you retain everything, and at what things expense are you retaining all of those games? Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, first of all, how are you? Did you have a, a, a good weekend? Was that was that all uh, okay? Yeah, um, I... <laughs> no, we're diving right in. I'm asking yeah, the question, questions immediately. Quick question straight away. Defend um, yourself. The Bundesliga is the the league that kind of falls uh, by the wayside. <laughs> okay, not many talking points for the Bundesliga. They they have their games on at the same time as Sterling Albion matches and Sky's catch up service is really really bad. So yeah, I feel like the Bundesliga is the league that I regularly watch the least of. But um, yeah, eleven matches. That's 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 quite uh, that, that's a smaller number for me. I feel like I've been I feel like I've been higher than eleven in, in this season at least. I think you definitely have. I, I think I, I don't believe I've ever asked you. Do you go into games that you're going to watch with a bit of background? Do you try to read a preview? Do you have things you're paying attention to or looking for or narratives you want to follow? Or is it sort of a blank canvas as soon as you turn the game on? No, I think there with most matches anyway, there there are always things that I am uh you know, I'm looking for. So for example, Atletico Madrid's Real Sociedad was at the weekend. That was a game that I was really looking forward to. La Real had been in really good form. I am really enjoy, enjoying watching Taki Kubo this season and Kieran Tierney is not in that team anymore. He's suffered an injury, so I wanted to see how La Real would, would cope after that. And then Atletico Madrid, I wanted to see how um, like Sal Niguez is, is a player that I've been writing about this week and uh, next week and he's kind of come back into that Atleti team so I wanted to see how he would he would fare I don't think he actually started in the end so that was a bit of a disappointment so yeah there are always things like Griezmann against his former club there are always things with most matches that I am uh, keeping an eye on that obviously makes sense I think I don't do that. I think I just approach games with like, all right, they're playing each other. I, maybe I know the basic stuff from paying attention of like Dortmund, not as strong of a season. Union Berlin, also not as strong of a season for them. Dortmund in a better position. Let's see what happens. And then I think maybe I read more after the fact if there's something I don't know about. But your way definitely does simplify a little bit and and isn't quite so like I have to catch up on two years worth of homework really quickly while watching a game. So maybe that's the more digestible way to approach things. Yeah, this is why you watch one game a weekend, because you have to do all that work just for one game. Yeah. And eight pages of notes to go with it. Uh, <laughs> let's let's not talk about those eight pages of notes. Let's talk about Arsenal 1, Manchester City nil. 
Arsenal and Arteta finally get a win over City, having lost, I believe, Arsenal losing 12 straight Premier League matches, uh, Arteta himself losing 7 of 7, Arsenal also without Saka, without Jurian Timber. I did not see this result coming, especially with City having uh, lost the weekend before. Did not feel like they were going to lose two in a row, and yet here we are. Graham, do you feel like this is a bigger positive result for Arsenal or a bigger negative result for Manchester City? Oh, I definitely think this is a bigger positive result for Arsenal than it is a negative one for Manchester City. As, as you say, Taylor, it had been a long, long time since Arsenal had beaten City in the Premier League. The last time they beat them, Arsene Wenger was Arsenal manager and Manuel Pellegrini was Manchester City manager. And uh, Shotran Mustafi scored for Arsenal in that game, the last Weirder. time they beat City in the league. Of the last Arsenal, of, of that team that beat City in the league, the last Arsenal team to beat City in the Premier League, seven of them have since retired. Yep. <laughs> Petr Cech, Per Mertesacker, <laughs> Koscielny, Nacho Monreal, Flamini, Matthew Oof. Flamini was playing for Arsenal, wow. uh, Meza Ozil and uh, Theo Walcott. I'm almost surprised that Arteta didn't play. That's how long ago it was. When I looked through this team, I was waiting for Mikel Arteta to actually be in the Arsenal team. So this this has been or it had been a, a, a mental barrier for Arsenal over the last few years. Obviously, you can win a title by not beating your rival, mm-hmm. but this, for me anyway, this felt like a hurdle that Arsenal needed to get over. It felt like the stakes were higher for Arsenal than City. I think City will be fine. They'll respond as they always do. After Christmas, they'll just win every single game that they play because that's mm-hmm. what Manchester City under Guardiola do. And also, Rodri will be back after the international break. They lost all three games that Rodri was suspended for. He missed out on the, the Newcastle United game in the Carabao Cup, which City lost. He then missed out the, the Wolves game last weekend, which City also lost. And then he was missing for this game so that's his three match suspension over and I think you put him back in this City team and all of a sudden that structure of that side looks instantly better with him involved but for Arsenal if they come out of this with another defeat to City I think that would have been a really tough one for them to take and I I thought this was a pretty scrappy game it wasn't the most fluid I, I certainly don't think the two teams played their best football but that was somewhat by design in Arsenal's case. And I think it, it's, it certainly suited Arsenal that the match played out this way. They, they were the team, even though City might have had more of the ball, I felt like Arsenal were the ones that were in control. They were the ones that dictated the terms of this match. A couple things there. First off, just a quick follow-up question. Uh, Rodri returning will be a difference or the difference for Manchester City? Uh, the difference feels quite absolute. So I'll say a difference for Manchester City. I think difference. he has he has probably been their be- their their player of the season so far. And mm. I think Joe referenced this last week because he's a number six, because he's a midfield anchor. We don't we don't really talk about it that much. But he has been playing at a very very high level for really all of twenty twenty three so far. So uh, I appreciate that clarification. I also appreciate the point about Arsenal and the importance of winning this one for that title challenge, because you're absolutely right. We've seen teams uh, drop points or draw and then lose to the teams that finish second or third, but you get sort of the cumulative results and it ends up working out. Uh, And Arsenal have been able to do that at times, but I think you're totally right that going up against City and getting that win, it is just a reminder that you can beat everybody. And in seasons past, it's been, well, we can beat everybody except for maybe Man City, and we hope we can beat them. And I think that does sort of present a block. It creates an obstacle that's difficult to overcome. 
And I think the scrappiness of this game, to your point, really did benefit Arsenal. And and I think it's a credit to them that they made this game what it was. And I like to say they brought City to their level is very unfair because that implies that like they were poor or not particularly good. It's just that in those individual challenges, in those individual moments, it felt like Arsenal were the stronger team that were more prepared to go to the mattresses, so to speak. Declan Rice is a prime example of that for me. He is a player that... We, we heard, we've heard so much about time and time again, and then he makes his move. And to see him with Arsenal, he is not a, a different player even. It's just a reminder of why they brought him in, because it's not just that he can do the defensive thing and make safe passes and be a controlling influence. He's going to win the ball. He's much stronger than I think I, I give him credit for, and he rides so many challenges in this game, but then also has just supreme passing ability. He has one where he he it's a 50-50 ball that Arsenal were in possession, and they could have lost and gone the other way, and it could have been a City counterattack, but he wins it back. He has then a City player on, on him pretty aggressively. He takes a touch away from that defender, holds them off with one arm, and with the same foot that he takes the first touch, plays a really good through ball in for Martinelli. It's the first yeah. shot Martinelli has in the second half half but just sort of those little moments i think show that arsenal this arsenal team can handle that physicality but then can also still play some impressive football so he was one that stood out to me as being an influential performer in this game yeah that that pass into martinelli is in my notes as well and rice has he's been forced to improve on the ball just because arsenal are, are a team that have more possession than than west ham or even england under southgate and so we have seen progression from him in that sense um this season since joining arsenal but i thought this was a match that really highlighted his his natural ability out of possession as well and really highlighted how quickly he's become a central pillar of this arsenal team and there was a there was a, a tackle which I th- i'm sure it was on julian alvarez um, which was just so clean and it stops a, a City attack dead in its track. It's, it's, it looks like a very dangerous transition moment for Manchester City. They, it's one of the few times when they were able to get bodies and, and, and players forward into the final third. And Declan Rice just doesn't let Alvarez go. He tracks back with him and then he does a very clean hooked tackle. And not only does he win the ball, then comes away with the ball and Arsenal come back up the pitch and he, he feeds it to Odegaard or, or, or someone like that. There were a number of moments like that from from Declan Rice and and so much of Arsenal's game plan was about stopping City playing their their attacking game. City had four shots in total, not on target, in total in this game, which was the fewest of any match they've played with Guardiola as a manager in the Premier League. So that is that's quite stark. Mm. Arsenal were very quick. A lot of this stuff, I, I don't think, is really down to shape or tactical approach it was just that Arsenal seemed to be getting bodies back quickly and essentially mm-hmm. making sure that City always had to beat two or three players to get into position for for a shot and City didn't have a great deal of width and that was to Arsenal's benefit because they are naturally very comfortable at blocking the centre of, of the pitch particularly now that they've got Declan Rice and uh, Thomas Partey is back for this game as well so that that helps there's a lot of Arsenal security in the centre of the pitch but unusually for a Guardiola City team it didn't feel especially likely that they were going to be able to play through Arsenal. And I think that was just down to how many players they were able to get back behind the ball. There were city transition moments where I noticed Arsenal had like six players back already. So there was essentially a wall in front of them at every opportunity. And that's that's what Arsenal wanted from their game plan. And of course, for the last 15, 20 minute, or, uh, minutes, Arteta makes changes and they open out ever so slightly and they start to go a little bit more direct. But even that felt like part of the game plan where Arsenal gave themselves a platform and then at a certain point of the match recognised that City were there for the taking. Particularly when Jeremy Doku comes comes uh, comes on for, for, for City and that 
maybe gives them a little bit more opportunity to to, to go in behind um, and perhaps open up spaces and behind City. Yeah, it was a good it was a good game plan from from Arsenal, and it said to me that they have learned from what happened last season, where essentially they tried to go toe to toe with City, they tried to play them at their own game and found that they weren't good enough in that sense. So this was a little bit more pragmatic from Arteta. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a statement of where Arsenal are as a team that. City bringing in this expensive attacking talent isn't a okay. We gotta like close up shop and nullify him. Instead, it's an opportunity. It's a it's space that can be attacked. It's an area to exploit. And I think that was that was pretty representative of Arsenal on the whole in this game. So often when City do end up dropping points, it's them with seventy five percent possession and three times as many passes, and the other team just sort of sitting back and absorbing and hoping to hold on and get something. And that was not the case for Arsenal in this game. I think possession pretty evenly split, fifty one forty nine in City's favor. XG neither one cracks one so not a ton of opportunities in this one. A similar number of passes completed, a similar number of fouls committed. Same for corners. So an even game. According to the stats, uh, it did feel sort of very conservative, very probing, very World War One. Both teams kind of not really yeah. trying to expose themselves and seeing what, what happens. And so very minimal chances, an early opportunity for City, uh, a few for Arsenal as the game went on. And then obviously the winner for them very late. But this felt like a very balanced game and one that Arsenal picked their moments, played their game and, and got the three points. And I think could be a really critical result for them going forward. And even in those those moments of of opportunity for two teams, it, it felt very attritional, which is not. Yes. I wouldn't say I wouldn't associate City and Arsenal with attritional football under their current managers. That is quite funny that we got a match like this, which was about midfield battles and going directly quickly and all that proper football man good stuff. And it was a match between two teams coached by Mikel Arteta and Pep yeah. Guardiola. And and there is a lot of overlap between how those two managers are now changing. They've obviously been very possession heavy earlier in their career, or for the majority of their career, of course, Arteta working under Guardiola at City. But now you have things like, you know, uh, centre-backs playing as full-backs and yeah. more security in central midfield, and they play with height. Arsenal are a very tall team, and they sign Kai Havertz in part, I believe, because he is a tall player, and that adds to their threat in the air. And someone smarter than me will surely write something on how the possession-based co- coaches are now being anglified a little bit, um, because I find that really interesting. Like, the closest City came to a goal was a, a shot from a corner, which Declan Rice clears off the line when David Raya goes walkies, and a tackle on the goalkeeper on David Raya as as well. So yeah, Big Big Sam must have been proud by. Remember, Big Sam said hmm. he could coach last season. He was like, I could coach yep. Manchester City with my eyes closed. This was essentially like that happened the way that Man City <laughs> played this match. Yeah, I mean, and even looking at the goal, it is a little bit route one. It is also massive credit to Mikel Arteta because he makes. Four changes in this game. Martinelli comes on at halftime. Uh, and then in the 75th minute, it's Kai Havertz, it's Thomas Partey, and it's uh, Takahiro Tomiyasu come on. And the goal is Partey playing a long direct ball to Tomiyasu, who knocks down for Havertz, who controls and lays off to Martinelli, who then finishes with the deflection, but still finishes. And right there, your four substitutes combining to get a goal, I think shows you that Arteta coached them up well and had them prepared. So there were the direct attacks. There was a little bit of hesitancy. If we're continuing the World War One analogy, there were some human wave attacks in the form of Mateo Kovacic, who I don't <laughs> know if he should have been uh, on the pitch for the entirety of this yeah. game. Graham, where were you on that one? I have no idea how he avoided a, nope. a, a red card. The, the first one is borderline red. 
in it in its own right. So he's mm-hmm. fortunate to only get a yellow for that, and then to commit. A, t- a challenge that which is nowhere near as bad as the first one, but nonetheless a, a pretty rough foul. Seconds it's a after yellow. that one. Like for yeah. like, there's no there's no denying that's a yellow card in any other situation except for maybe when the player has just been booked. Yeah, I mean, you just know that Casemiro was watching that absolutely raging because he's he, if if that's him, he's currently got an eight match ban. Or Diogo Jota too, man. Like last yeah. weekend, he gets what two yellow cards inside of like two minutes, and one yeah. of them is a sort of. I mean, I, I I felt like they were both yellow cards, but I think you look at those as being. This a similar situation in which he's just gotten the one, then there's a foul. That Yes, it's a foul. It's probably a yellow card, but if you're giving him a yellow, you're sending him off, and Jota is sent off. Kovacic is not. I would be a little a little bit annoyed if I were Liverpool, although they are already pretty annoyed with uh, the league as it is. Yeah, I have no idea how Kovacic stayed on the pitch. To be honest, he hasn't been quite as good as I thought he would be Agreed. for Manchester City. I thought he would come in and we would see him restored to his Real Madrid form before he went to Chelsea and Pep would get something extra out of his, his game. I think part of the problem has been he's he's been used in a deeper role than I anticipated. I kind of thought he was going to be the Gundogan mm-hmm. replacement coming into that City team. That's been Julian Alvarez this, so far this season. Obviously, he's performing that role very well for Manchester City. But yeah, Kovacic maybe not quite as impressive for City so far this season as I had envisaged. Agreed entirely. And I would add, I think for Chelsea last season, the thing that I found so impressive by Kovacic pretty consistently was how often he was good on the dribble. And that wasn't a thing I really remembered from his game or like thought primarily was his game. And I did after last year that he would dribble his way out of pressure or he would transition into into a counterattacks or he would kind of progress the ball forward. Progressive carries, I guess, is the, the Joe term. I think I got that right. Uh, and, but so often he would start from deep evade an initial tackle, get past one defender, and then the pitch would open up and he would sort of carry it into the attack and then make that attack happen. And I do just wonder if maybe that isn't what Pep Guardiola wants. I think he doesn't love players carrying the ball forward at length if it means that they're leaving space to then counterattack or space open that someone else has to cover that breaks down other aspects of the attack. I wonder if there's just slightly more control to the way City want to play and maybe Kovacic hasn't quite figured that one out yet or, or gelled yet, but that's sort of par for the course for everybody that isn't Erling Haaland. So we'll see how the season <laughs> goes on. And when we get to the second half and City win every single game, I guess we won't be that surprised, uh, even if Mateo Kovacic is not doing the Ilkay Gundogan role. We'll talk about Ilkay Gundogan maybe later on in this episode. For now, Graham, let's take one break and then we'll talk more. Uh, Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, MLS. we got a lot to get through. Let's see how quickly we can do it. Back soon. New game day shirt, boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate, boom, Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement account with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match 
Search. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost. Subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood Gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to special terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker. Dealer. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. When last we left you, I had mentioned Liverpool feeling slightly aggrieved with the league for the way things have gone for them. I think they're feeling slightly aggrieved with themselves and maybe some of the officiating uh, in this 2-2 draw with Brighton. Uh, Graham, what did you make of the Reds and their performance in this one? I thought it was a, a really attack-minded performance by Liverpool. So in, in, in that sense, I very much enjoyed watching this match in the UK in, in, in sun, uh, on, on Sundays in the Premier League, I don't know if they brand them this way on NBC, but Super Sunday is every Premier League match on Sunday is called Super Sunday. And some Sundays are uh, less super than other ones. But Brighton-Liverpool, followed by Arsenal-Man City, was, was a good slate to have on, on, on Sunday. And this match lived up to, its, uh, up to its billing. I thought Liverpool were entertaining to watch. They were frequently sending six players forward in attacks. And uh, even in the first few minutes... There was an attack where Andy Robertson was sprinting through the middle as the furthest forward player. I've never seen that from Andy Robertson before. Um, it didn't quite work out for him because he's still a left back in a centre forward position. And I don't envisage he'll get into that position many more times over the course of the season. But I thought it was a brave approach from Liverpool. It made it an entertaining match. Um, even if it also contributed to Brighton having space to exploit in, in attack themselves um but this was always likely to be the case between these two managers and 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 these two these two teams Jurgen Klopp and Roberto De Zerbi obviously um favor attacking football and it was a good match it was also a strange match to me in that like a couple seasons ago when uh, everybody started to transition to having a goalie who could pass the ball and then managers would insist on playing a goalkeeper who could not. Petr Cech is a prime example of this at Arsenal where he was just passing the ball to everyone, including the opposition, in very bad moments. The debate became, are we overly focused on building out of the back? Is this just possession for possession's sake? Is it not really achieving anything? I feel like we've lost that debate a little bit. This game could bring it right back because, (laughs) to my mind, at least three of the goals come from... Teams trying to play out of the back, getting caught, and then getting punished. So the opener for Brighton, uh, Adingra, who, who starts this one, uh, intercepts a ball from Virgil van Dijk, takes a touch, realizes that Alisson is very much out of position uh, because of the way uh, build-up had happened. And it's a great finish. It's an in-step pass that sort of bends around Alisson and into the goal. Uh, but right there, Liverpool caught trying to build out. Then Liverpool uh, are able to do the exact same thing to Brighton, uh, where they basically catch them in possession, Swift counterattack. Or no, excuse me, that's for the penalty. The penalty is the yeah. uh they're they're caught in possession and then there's the drag down that somehow wasn't a red card. But a lot of emphasis on playing out with two teams that are very good at pressing. Uh, it felt like uh a pressing force me- meeting a pressing object, and I guess they both <laughs> pressed each other, basically. Was I the only one who was confused by Alison Becker being so far out of his goal once he'd given the ball away? Oh, just like, because I of that, not because of the lack of mustache? Because that does still throw me off. The lack but, of yeah. facial hair on him is very confusing. <laughs> that is confusing to see on, on Alison. Uh, but yeah, he makes the mistake 
or rather the the, the Liverpool defence makes the mistake, but yet does doesn't seem to get back quickly mm-hmm. to his. I don't know. I just felt like if that was me, I'd be sprinting back to the centre of the goal because I've made a, a mess up, and Adingra has a very easy job of of just. I don't know. It was. I, I felt like it was an, another mistake that compounded the original mistake. But you're right. There, it was it was a little bit scrappy at times. Um, I think the scrappiness kind of favours Liverpool to be honest. Where mm. it feels like they've got their chaos factor back as a team, and I've had a great time watching them this season. I love Darwin Nunes. He's genuinely one of my favourite players to watch at the moment because there is that chaos factor and, and, and that is part of what, what makes him so good. And I think this season has been really positive for him, not just because he's starting more games and his output has been decent, but because it feels like people, and I include Klopp in this, have a better understanding of the player that he is now. So when he comes in last season, the talk was of Liverpool finally having this orthodox number nine and there were comparisons with Erling Haaland and we all kind of indulged in those comparisons I I think we all recognize that they're very different players now and Nunes is is a facilitator as much as he is a a finisher in his own right and and I think Salah is really benefiting from that right now you know Salah and and Nunes have combined for more goals than any other two Liverpool players this season you can see the understanding there you saw it in this match with the way that Liverpool are directing attacks into Nunes he's kind of the battering ram and then Salah is somewhere around Darwin Nunes to to pick up the the goal or the finish or the shot or whatever and I think Liverpool are getting back to being the best transition team in the league and and, and that is where Klopp does his best work so when you talk about the scrappiness Taylor and maybe some mistakes being made in possession I think Liverpool can account on that in games to then launch into their own style of course it doesn't work so well when you give the op- the, op- the opposition yeah. the same opportunities, and that's what happened in this match. Yeah, yeah. Try, try not to do that if you're Liverpool, uh, unless you're playing Manchester United. And it is the case, yes, both Liverpool goals are co- come from Brighton giveaways. For the first one, uh, it's, I think, Dunk trying to play out vertically. It gets cut out um, uh, by McAllister, who plays to Sobosly. Sobosly turns, plays to the feet of Luis Diaz. And this was a really just heads-up moment from Luis Diaz. Of, I think he sees Dunk then aggressively stepping to try to either make him take a touch back away from goal or maybe win the ball outright. And Diaz, just for a quarter second, turns his body in a way that makes it seem to Dunk, I think, like, oh, I can step in and win that ball. He's going to kind of try to turn into me with it, so I'll just step and win. And then as soon as Dunk commits on that, Luis Diaz turns the other way, receives and turns out of that pressure. Dunk is bypassed, and now it goes from a... 3v2 for Liverpool to a 4v1, basically. Uh, and Diaz is able to find Nunez. Nunez then, I think, like, to your point, maybe if there's a little more pressure last year, if there is that, like, he's got a score, he's the Firmino replacement, we need him to be uh, contributing attacking play, but also getting some goals. I think wonder if maybe he shoots or has a go there. Instead, he takes a touch, passes to Harvey Elliott, who fully sells that dummy and leaves it to Salah to finish. Graham, my question for you, from a stats standpoint... Should Nunez and Elliot get the credit for the assist on that one? Because that leave is so good. And it does take a little bit of guts and a little bit of like team commitment. I feel like Harvey Elliott yeah. deserves a stat. Yeah, there should be like a new Opta category called like ghost assist or something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's Halloween. You know, it's coming yes. up for Halloween. It's in that uh, spirit. Uh, while we're talking about like interesting little moments, I just want to also give credit to Brighton for getting the equalizer off of a really well taken set piece that I had to watch maybe 15 times because it kept feeling like Liverpool. That's very on brand for you. (laughs) It is. I just like, I don't know if you had the same thing, but I was really confused how Liverpool don't clear this because they had four people like in position to do so. And no one makes a play. 
And if you told me after the fact that a Brighton player had said, like, Virgil's ball and, like, sold his Virgil van Dijk accent and so everybody just stepped out of the way, I would believe it. Because Liverpool, very passive in that moment. Brighton, very aggressive. Get Get the equalizer off that set piece. But also... In the fourth minute, I wish this had been scored so I could give it full Master Set Piece Theater credit. I'll give it partial credit for this one. But it's a corner taken low and short, which is, you know, normal. It's a it's a played low into a player, but they immediately lay it off to a player. I think it was João Pedro in the box uh, who is wide open at that point. It's Sally March is wide open in the box because everybody bites on that ball in at the near post. And just a little clever play that I can't recall seeing before, but it does lead to a wide open shot from 12 yards out, which is probably the best result you can get from a corner, even if it doesn't end in a goal. So Brighton had some some good set piece opportunities. Don't end up taking maybe that first one that would have made a difference. But Liverpool play their game, uh, get some goals themselves. Salah with a penalty as well. Still, again, unclear how that didn't end up being a red card because, to my mind, Subasli pulled down. I think the official said because yeah. he wasn't directly going at goal, he was just going a cross goal to then immediately shoot. It wasn't necessarily denial of a goal scoring opportunity, but that also could have been a difference maker. And I think yeah. if you're Jurgen Klopp tallying up your perceived injustices, that will probably make the list for this year. Yeah, to to be fair to Brighton, they also had a handball call that didn't go their way towards the was that the towards the end of the match. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Is it off Van Dijk or is it off Joe, Joe Matip? It's off a Liverpool defender. They go to VR review. They don't give the the penalty to Brighton. I think Roberto De Zerbi was very very frustrated about that to the point there's a direct quote from him after the match where he says he's got two regrets in life. One of them is cigarettes, and the other one is football. <laughs> and that felt like. A yeah. consequence of, of that penalty maybe not being awarded to Brighton when perhaps they might have had it. Yeah, I think João Pedro has uh, the miss on that sitter in the 84th minute that probably exacerbated uh, De Zerbi's frustrations with how this game played out. Liverpool, though, too, could have gotten one more goal. Uh, wanted to note that one. In the 54th minute, it's a really good attack. Sobislai played in by uh, Nunez. Low cross, back across goal. Gra- Gravenberch is there. Yeah. His shot goes off the crossbar and back into play. Uh, Graham, that's a 0.62 XG. Uh, Gr- Joe isn't here, so I'll ask you for this one. Can we file that as a probably should have done better moment? Oh, then? If we're not going to say should have done better, how about probably should have done better? <laughs> I believe Joe has got a long flight today back yeah. ho- back home, and so there's a chance that he will have lined up TSS episodes Let's to listen so. to. And so um, I don't, I, I maybe don't want to rile him up too much, but Come on. yeah, m- might have done better is how I would, I would word that about, about might, Graham. Might, could, should have done better. There we go. Yeah. Graham Ruffin yeah. said it first. Should have uh, scored. Man United 2, Brentford 1. Do we need to talk about that? Are we sure? Because it really, it's a frustrating thing. Uh, my Manchester United uh, supporting friend, uh, we were kind of texting throughout this game and it was something along the lines of like, I hate that they've taken the joy out of this, that even though they score this last minute equalizer and then last minute winner, uh, he said, I hate that they've removed the effing joy from these goals. This team isn't even fun to watch. Now, that was written in the heat of the moment, but I think there is some validity there that this wasn't Manchester United conceding an unfortunate goal and then fighting their way back in and waves of pressure and waves of pressure and then they make something happen. It was sort of Scott McTominay being used in a position where his national team uses him and and he comes good. But it didn't make me, a Man United fan, feel much better about the state of things at the club. Who could have seen Scott McTominay being effective in a more attacking role? Oh, 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 that's right. Everyone in Scotland (laughs) has been saying that for the last year. Yeah, this this is the first time I've seen Ten Ten Hag really use McTominay in a way that 
I, I think this is his position. I think I said this before in the show. He's Marwan Fellaini, Scott McTominay. Um, he, he's not an anchor. He's not a midfield six. He, he's, he's someone... I think players get pigeonholed in that position because they're like tall and you think, oh, physical and there'll be a good barrier in front of the, the back four. Fellaini had that as well. And then over time, he's moved into a more attacking position. Um, but McTominay is someone who wants to carry the ball into attacking areas and make l- late runs into the box and get on the end of crosses. He played as a striker until he was 16 years old, which is pretty late in a player's development to be playing in a certain position. And Ten Hag throws him on in this game to play as a a striker alongside Hoyland for the last 10 minutes and while I'm not saying that should happen every match and that Scott McTominay is now a striker um, hopefully this does prove where McTominay can be useful for Manchester United because I do think he has his uses he is a bit of a chaos merchant and Scotland and Steve Clark have got the best out of him and you might say well you know it's international football he's done this against Norway and Spain and all these good teams in, in the past year so I think Scott McTominay gets a little bit of harsh criticism from even Manchester United fans to be honest but I agree mm-hmm. Taylor football is a funny game because for 93 minutes or whatever it was when Scott McTominay scored that first goal um, this was absolutely more of the same from Manchester United they'd struggled to create much Hoyland had been active again um, but it was all very I mean the thing is with Hoyland how many times have we seen it with Manchester United they sign a player their first five games or whatever is encouraging and then and then the mood around Old Trafford Mm -hmm. just kind of darkens their mindset as well and I'm anticipating that with Hoyland but for now he's a refreshing presence in that Manchester United team I I don't disagree I was just laughing at you like Hoyland was active again like (laughs) like that could really take that in a number of different ways however you want to uh, he was running about a bit. That's yeah, more than what most Manchester United players seem to do. But yeah, Brentford, they, they exposed United's defensive weakness with a, a, a goal that was just a catalogue of errors for Manchester United, where Maguire gives the ball to Casemiro when Casemiro doesn't want the ball. Casemiro then loses the ball, then doesn't really do anything to get back into position. And then United struggled with the runners into the box. And then there was a typical Andrea Nana mistake by letting the ball squirm through his hands again and it was a movie that we've watched multiple times already this season but yeah out of nowhere my adult son Scott McTominay comes up with two goals and uh, saves Manchester United. So United roughly in a 4-2-3-1 in this game if Eric Ten Hag decided you know what Scott McTominay is my man of all the signings I've made this is the guy a player I inherited this is who I'm building around where does McTominay best fit in that shape? Yeah, it's a good question because I'm not sure that he does in a four-two-three-one. It would, so what would it need be then? to be. Yeah. Well, four-three-three, uh, he'd be part of the midfield three, but with the freedom to get forward to support the central striker is essentially where he plays for Scotland and does very well. So if Ten Hag is building that four-three-three midfield, then with the present personnel and the present form, notably McTominay's in there. Who are the other two players you would put in that midfield, and then who would you sit? Um, so at the base of the midfield, I think Amrabat is a better mm. option right now over Casemiro. Not because Casemiro has done, excuse me, Amrabat has played particularly well, because Casemiro has played particularly poorly so mm. far this season. So I think Amrabat. This is this is a difficult one because I don't know if you can have Fernandez and McTominay in the same midfield unit, and that is that that is an issue. Um, but I do think as a rotational option, McTominay has has his uses. I'm not I'm not saying that McTominay. I feel like I'm no, getting led down to. the garden path here I'm a little bit. I'm forcing you to, yeah. <laughs> McTominay is not, he's, he is not good enough to be a central pillar for Manchester United. I do think he's good enough to be an option for them. And it feels like he hasn't been that this season. Like, I do think he should get a, a good a good amount of game time. He should start a number of matches in, in a rotational role. 
Um, but yeah, I'm not sure I would build around them as such. It just feels like when people talk about Manchester United players, they class Maguire and McTominay in the same category. Oof. And when I look at the mistakes that Maguire has made <laughs> and how poor he has played, I don't think McTominay has played anywhere near as poorly as Harry Maguire has for, as a Manchester United player. But even it's McTominay who, like, his effort or lack thereof on the defensive side when he's come on and his positional discipline has been criticized. So for him to get both of these goals, it's a great moment if you are a Manchester United fan who wants to win. But if you're a Manchester United fan who wants clarity on the situation, definitely not the result you were hoping for because now McTominay looks great, uh, scores these goals, but it just further clouds an already murky picture of like what exactly is the problem and who exactly is the one to make it better. So though they get the win, I wouldn't say this is a a sign of of happier times for Man United. I don't know if the same can be said of Chelsea, who get a 4-1 to win over Burnley. Uh, Chelsea starting to kind of round into form, Graham. Uh, three wins from three, uh, including a win over Brighton, then the win over Fulham, now over Burnley. Not the strongest of opposition, but still, is this Chelsea turning it around? Is this is yeah. it happening, Graham? Yeah, whisper it. It might actually be happening. Um, obviously, it's still very early. It's a small sample size, mm-hmm. right? Three wins in a row over, with the exception of Brighton in the, in the Carabao Cup, who... I think we're probably quite glad to be out of that competition, probably. to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's a win over Fulham. That was the it's third thing over... for Deserby. No, that was, that was the thing he doesn't regret. It was cigarettes <laughs> and football he regrets getting knocked out of the Carling Cup he's fine with. Yeah, he, 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 they didn't the send him cup. any carabao for him yeah. to have a smoke. <laughs> where, you know, that was, that, the milk that cup, was the, the Coca-Cola started. cup, whichever one. We can just rotate the sponsors. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Yeah, so Chelsea, it's a small sample size, obviously, but... When you look at how they have played, and I have watched, I watched the Fulham game uh, a week ago today on Monday night. I always watch the Monday night game in the, in the, in the Premier League. I watched the extended highlights on, on Sky, so you get a good like 45 minutes of highlights from, from a game on a Saturday night. And so I, I watched that as well from, from this match. So I feel like I've got a pretty good impression of how they're playing at the moment. And you can see big improvements. They are starting to look like a more cohesive unit. And I, I, I thought, this is where I caveat that, I thought they started out the season that way. I remember talking about their first game against Liverpool and while they don't get the result, I thought there were real positives and you could see what Pochettino was trying to do and how he wanted them to play. But then injuries happen and Todd Bowley goes nuts in the transfer market again and that seemed to disrupt things. But now I think we're starting to see them come out of the other side. And that's not me saying they're going to win the title or even challenge for the top four, but uh, it does feel like they're they're starting to turn the corner. The international break, it comes at the worst possible time for them because that's just going to halt that momentum again. Who knows, maybe a couple of key players come back with an injury or a knock and, and, and that impacts things. But you are starting to look at that team and certain players are now flourishing in that team. Um, Cole Palmer has had a very good couple of games in that position on the right side of the, the Chelsea attack where he, that, that position allows him to have a real influence on games. Obviously, he likes to come inside. But that has also had a knock-on effect of giving Chelsea a bit more balance in their central midfield where it feels like Enzo Fernandez doesn't, feel like he needs to be a secondary forward anymore and that means he's dictating things a little bit more on on the ball in the centre of the pitch so Cole Palmer to me is someone that we didn't know a great deal about because obviously he hadn't had a, a lot of game time at Manchester City but he looks like a, like a cohesion player who also carries a threat himself and Chelsea have needed cohesion players for, for a while and you can see the Man City education in him in the way that he is so good at it's not just his technical ability it's awareness of space and filling space and knowing where to be in certain moments of attacking phases I can see that City education 
So all of a sudden, he's looking like a good addition. I do wonder what happens when Nkuku comes back and you've got a couple other injuries to clear as well. That could knock him down the pecking order. But he is making a really good case for himself in, in, that, in that Chelsea lineup. Plus, whenever Todd Bowley signs another wide attacker in the January window, of course. just to further complicate. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, a very strange weekend, as we've already said, Graham, with uh, Arsenal finally getting the win over City. Scott McTominay is the goal-scoring threat. We all knew he could be Chelsea rounding into form. And Tottenham topping the Premier League table. Yeah. We live in bizarro world, Graham. We live in bizarro world. Yeah, there have been some really ominous signs of the pending apocalypse recently. <laughs> so September was it. the hottest September <laughs> in history. Apparently a giant hole in the ozone layer has opened up over the ice caps. Uh, Martin Short is relevant again. Aye. All signs of the unavoidable doom we face as humankind. <laughs> Spurs being top of the Premier League is surely another one of Martin those signs. Martin Short, shots fired. I wasn't expecting that one today. <laughs> I actually quite like him in uh, Only Murders in the Building. I just I just wasn't expecting it, Taylor, is what I'll say. The Martin Short Renee is not something I had in my bingo card for 2023 and 2022 and I didn't have Spurs being top of the Premier League on my bingo card uh, either so after this show is over I'm going to stalk the nuclear bunker I built over the weekend in the back garden how many screens are in there is it just screens and kits is that what's in the bunker no food no fresh water you know that wall that Morgan Freeman has in The Dark Knight? Yes, of course. That's it? That's essentially Perfect. it, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right. I'm sure your your wife and child will really appreciate that. Your, your child, mate. She could probably put... Uh, yeah, there's no space for them. There could be some Peppa Pig on there. Oh, okay. Good Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> uh, one final Premier League game to be mentioned. Uh, West Ham 2, uh, Newcastle 2. Graham, you were very concerned when Mohamed Kudush moved to West Ham. That maybe we would never see him again, or when we did, it would just be as like a tough tackling, no-nonsense midfielder defender uh but he's involved he lives he does things he does i was a bit worried that david moyes had just completely forgotten that he'd signed Mohamed kudus because he still hasn't started a league game for west ham but he scores the equalizer in this game to to make it 2-2 in the moments i've seen him off the bench he he's looked good pretty much every time he has he has featured i just think he's got such an excellent skill set he's a very mobile modern forwards in the way that I was talking about Cole Palmer and his appreciation of space. I think Mohamed Kudush has that similar quality, just obviously in a more advanced position as as a centre forward. So I'm hopeful that I can understand why Moyes wants to maybe ease a new signing into a team that has been pretty established over the last few years. Of course, West Ham had success in Europe last season, so there's not a great need for them to rush signings into that team. But I am hopeful that Mikel Antonio, given where he is in his career, will eventually become Mohamed Kudush in, in that West Ham team. And I think that is a big upgrade because I'm a massive fan of Kudush. For um, for Newcastle, their season's been a bit strange, right? This, it's not just me a who bit, feels that. Because bit. in the Champions League, yeah. they have looked like the team we saw in the Premier League last season. They've got four points from two games. Of course, they smashed PSG last week. They got a good point at San Siro against AC Milan. But in the Premier League this season, I, I think they've looked pretty defensively vulnerable at times. And I thought Bruno Gomares talking about midfielders, central midfielders who were fortunate to stay on the pitch in the, Prem- in the Premier League this weekend. I thought he was another one. I thought he, he might have been sent off for um, a second bookable offence. And even with him staying on, I, it felt like West Ham were kind of overrunning him at points. And he hasn't been the same presence in the Premier League this season. This is where their season has been weird because in Europe, he's been fantastic in the two games that he has played. So I don't know if that's just down to the demands of European football impacting performances in the league. We did kind of predict that in our season preview that maybe Newcastle don't finish in the top four this season because of the demands of playing in the Champions League. So that's maybe what we're seeing. But it is 
still a confusing one where in Europe they look so hot, so solid, they look cohesive, that defence looks strong, and in, in, in the Premier League, it's been a little bit more fragmented. I do wonder, not necessarily like M- Milan isn't particularly good or something like that, but just the Premier League is such a beast of an entity. Uh, and not to be a Premier League exceptionalist, but there are so many teams in the Premier League with money capable of beating you on any given weekend. You don't get as many, they're sitting 10 behind the ball and, and just holding on for dear life that you might get in other leagues, cough, cough, La Liga. So it, I, I do wonder if to some extent, like, uh, in the Champions League, it's it's a more fun opportunity to get to play like some open, expansive football. Whereas against West Ham, they've scouted you, they know you, they're going to make you work for every single inch, and you're just going to have to scrap and claw. Because that squad from West Ham, if you look at it in a vacuum, like it, it itself could be a Champions League team. If if you had that squad playing for Villarreal, I'd be like, yeah, no, that's a Champions League team. That makes sense. Yeah. So there is just so much quality because there's so much money in the Premier League that I do think that even if you're having a strong Champions League campaign, because maybe there isn't as much expected of you, maybe because you're super up for it because it is your, your, your like for a lot of these players, it's their first time in the Champions League, certainly their first time in the Champions League in a Newcastle shirt. I wonder if they're just able to raise their game that much more, whereas the Premier League, as much of a beast as it is, is also just more of a come down afterwards. And so we see them have good moments, but also have erratic moments at the same time. Yeah, they have also had a, a, a pretty brutal start to the there season in Newcastle that. in terms of fixtures. So I'm just looking at their Premier League fixtures. They played eight games. They start with Aston Villa, who, as we've seen, are a strong team this season. Then they have Man City. Then they have Liverpool. Then they have Brighton away. Then there's like a run of three games, which is a little bit more favourable. Brentford, Sheffield United, who, of course, they smash 8-0 in that game. And then Burnley. And then it's back to difficult games yeah. with West Ham away. So after this match, they have got... Crystal Palace and Wolves, they've then got Arsenal, which is not so uh, not so easy, of course. But then they've got Bournemouth, Everton in early December. So, yeah, hopefully the, the schedule, or not hopefully, it will even out for, for Newcastle between now and, and the end of the year. But that doesn't that also doesn't mention a 0-0 draw with Milan in the Champions League, the emphatic 4-1 win over PSG, and the 1-0 win over Man City in the cup that Man City probably don't care about. Uh, but still, strong opposition and some good results for Newcastle. Credit to them. Uh, we have... Gotten through most of the Premier League games, uh, still La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, and MLS to talk about. Uh, we're going to round that out in part three back soon. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going 
to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Graham, we've officially entered the quick hits portion of the Total Soccer Show, I believe, (laughs) when you've watched 400 games and I've watched uh, about two of them. Uh, We're going to spend some time in the Bundesliga, but first we're going to go to La Liga with Real Madrid getting a 4-0 win over Osasuna and Jude Bellingham refusing to not be talked about. (laughs) Yeah, uh, another Jude Bellingham masterclass in this match. Uh, Ten goals in ten games. He's ridiculous, but there's only so many times I can talk about how good he is, so I'm actually going to spotlight someone else. I'm going to talk about Ferry Valverde, because I, I, I think it's kind of been overlooked how good a season he is having this year. We all knew about Valverde's running qualities and his work ethic, and he's got a cannon of a shot on him, of course, almost took off a, a goalpe- goalkeeper's head in the Champions League last week. But um, oh, yeah. this season, we've seen him show the passing side to his game. Um, two excellent assists in this match, 4-0 win over Osasuna. In La Liga, I looked through some of his uh, some of his stats this season in La Liga. He's first in shot creating actions, third in key passes, second in passes into the penalty area, and third in progressive carries. The progressive carries thing is is probably predictable with Valverde, given what we'd seen of him before this season. But those other things, shot creating actions, key passes, and passes into the penalty area, is not are, they're not things I would have necessarily associated with his game. So I think that is impressive. That's progression from Valverde. I think. He, this season, because of Bellingham, actually, mm-hmm. he's not expected to get into the as many attacking positions as previously was the case. So it's not all about Bellingham for 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 Real Madrid, just mainly about him at the moment. I would say this is a result that keeps Real Madrid at the top of La Liga. I am already looking at that Clasico on October twenty eighth, twenty eighth, and thinking that's going to have a big bearing on the title race in in, in Spain this season. Graham, I already took my shot at annoying Joe uh, earlier in the episode since he's not here to defend himself but just has to captively listen to it. Do you want to talk about Hossalou for a moment? I do, I do. Yeah, uh, yeah just while, yes. while, while Joe isn't here, I'll talk about Hossalou because I, I get the feeling that Joe isn't a fan of of, of, of him. But I, I think Real Madrid are better with him as part of the front two. And that doesn't necessarily mean I think he's out, outstanding. Can I be Joe for a moment? Go on. It's not that I'm not a fan. It's that statistically he's not going to present you with as many opportunities as you might get from other opportunities from players uh, if you put them in a similar role. That's a good impression. Thank you. That's a good impression. I think that I said opportunities twice. He wouldn't do that, but yeah. otherwise. No, he would be cleaner than that. Of course. He's a very yes. clean broadcast, Joe Lyrae. <laughs> um, to be honest, that is a fair, that is a, that's a fair 
argument with Hoss- with Hosselu. And I understand why Joe maybe doesn't feel he's up to the standard of, of Real Madrid. We expect Real Madrid to be Ronaldo or Benzema or Raul or whoever. Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo. Um, I, it doesn't... Bale. My praise of him Drenta. doesn't necessarily... Yeah. <laughs> Drenta, gonna... yeah. Thomas Gravison. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. The stars, Perfect. of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so Hosselu, I think Real Madrid are just better balanced with... Bellingham in an attacking role and behind Vinicius, who's always looking to get in behind and he stretches the pitch. And then Hosselu, who is a kind of old-fashioned focal point and a penalty box player. And I think he is good enough for that role. He's got five goals in nine games this season in La Liga. Five of them are starts, so he's not even started nine games. Four of them he's come off the bench. So that is not bad at all. And looking at this performance, yeah, it feels like that attacking line with Bellingham and in the midfield three of primarily um, uh, Modric, Chumene and uh, Valverde with Camavinga at left back and then Hosselu and Vinicius up front. That that feels like a good balance to that to that Real Madrid team. So yeah, justice for Hosselu that uh, in in this instance that Joe's not here. Uh, justice for Hosselu, indeed. I'm laughing about that. I'm still laughing about the Thomas Graveson uh, reference. Thank you, Graham. Uh, Atleti with a 2-1 to win over Real Sociedad. Atleti on a very strong run of form, unbeaten in their last five in uh, all competitions, or four in La Liga, one in the Champions League. Uh, Diego Simeone signing a contract extension. Graham, how is it that Diego Simeone has been about to leave every season so far and yet somehow we'll never leave Atleti and we'll be there in like the year 2035 that's just how he gets them to buy him a new black suit every year oh, of course. he threatens to leave they bring him a new, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll the new one new one that, he gets paid in black suits <laughs> I think of yeah. I think of the Parks and Rec bit of like which tie should I wear they're all black <laughs> no this is midnight this is onyx this is like that's what I think of <laughs> yeah. a Simeone he knows all of his different shades of black exactly yeah, yeah. Perfect. So that, okay. that, that has, he gets paid in in, in black suits and in, in black shirts. But yeah, this was an impressive result for Atleti, given the form that La Real were in. Uh, Samuel Lino scored his first goal as an Atleti player. He joined from Valencia in in the summer. He started the season very very well, and is actually a big reason why they've been in such good form because Atleti teams when they've been good under Simeone they've always had that forward thrust in, in the wide areas and he gives them that and you saw that for the goal that he scored in this game where he breaks away in behind and, and, and finishes but as good as Samuel Lino we actually saw him at the bad side of his game as well in, the, in this match because he leaves a lot of space in behind and Mikel Oriathabal um, made the most of that to equalise from an excellent counter by Larial and then Griezmann gets the winner against his uh, his former club from from the spot, I I think Atleti were the more proactive of the two teams and and maybe deserved the win, which says says something about how they're playing this season. Because um, when I've watched Atleti this season, I haven't wanted to scratch at my own eyes, which is an improvement <laughs> hey. on past Simeone teams. So, so good good job, Diego. An improvement for Atleti, an improvement for Real Madrid. Uh, curious for your thoughts on Granada two Barcelona two, uh, because there were some interesting moments, there were some interesting narratives. Uh, but I read one match report that was like fully sky is falling for Barcelona. Like things are in crisis. Things are bad injuries and players not fitting in. And then you look at their form and like, they, they seem to be doing just fine, Graham. So can you make sense of this result for me, please? I certainly don't think that the sky is falling for Barcelona, but I, I think maybe a factor in that match report is maybe that it felt like Barcelona had really found momentum after mm-hmm. a slightly slow start to the season and they have regressed a little bit. So they've dropped points in their last two away games in, in the league against Real Mallorca and, and Granada, two teams that Barcelona would be expected 
to beat, but they were they were 2-0 down in this match within 30 minutes, and, and Granada did expose some defensive weaknesses that are that are still there when opposition teams are bold enough to get players into the into the Barca box. And 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 Granada did that very, very well. Two goals for Brian Zaragoza, whose whose second finish was absolutely magnificent. He just waited and waited and sat everyone down in the box. I think Opposition players, when they get when they play Barcelona, they can get a little bit panicky when they get an opportunity. They think, "Oh, I've got to take this because I won't get another opportunity against Barcelona." There was none of that from Zaragoza. He just waited and was calm. And then the finish is a little bit of like an outside of the boot toe poke. It's a little bit, um, it's unusual, it's unconventional, but a, a very very good goal. He has been excellent for Granada this season, and within an hour of this match finishing, he'd been called into the Spain squad. So I don't know if that was if that was De La Fuente's plan or if he was just sitting watching the game on, on Sunday evening and was like, oh, we'll, just, we'll give him a call. But he's been very good this season, obviously hoping he shows none of that brilliance against Scotland on, on, on Thursday. But yeah, what, what a night he had for Granada. In terms of Barcelona's performance, as the match progressed, it, it was pred- predictable um, that this was the pattern of the match was going to be about Barcelona trying to break Granada down because, of course, Granada had a 2-0 lead to protect. Uh, Laminia Mal is so good. He is such a good player. He scores the first one to make it 2-1. It kind of looked like if Barcelona were going to get three points out of the game, it was going to come through Yamal. He was the only one who seemed to give Granada consistent issues in the final third. Then Sergio Roberto gets the second to make it 2-2 with, 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 with five to play. A third goal was beyond Barcelona, um, though. So, so even though they respond pretty well in this game and they did play some good stuff, I think it was just a case of they gave themselves far too much to do. Granada are not a bad team. They have a high ceiling as a team. They have a history of causing upsets. So giving them a 2-0 a advantage in the first half away from home as well for Barcelona, it was, it was, it was going to be difficult. There we are. Uh, over in Serie A, we've got Inter 2, Bologna 2. Graham, we are running a little bit long, so I'll only give you maybe a tight 15 for Lewis Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about Lewis Ferguson. I'm going to need more than 15 minutes right. to talk about him. Just let um, me know when you're done. I'll be back. Go ahead. Okay, uh, I'll let you know. He's a player that I don't think I've spoken much about on on the show. But anyway, the context here is Inter are 2-0 up. They're cruising. Lataro Martinez scores an absolute laser to make it 2-0. And at that point, Bologna looked to be out of it. Um, but Lewis Ferguson plays a big role in turning the match round for Bologna. He wins the penalty to make it 2-1, then plays a wonderful pass from deep for, for an assist to make it uh, 2-2. And I'm getting really excited about Lewis Ferguson, who seems to have taken, taken a massive leap forward since moving to, to Serie A from Aberdeen. He's scoring goals. He's the Bologna captain, which for a Scot, playing in Serie A is just unheard of I think like Joe Jordan was maybe the last Scottish player to captain a team in Serie A and he's arguably their their most influential player um so yeah very 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 excited about Lewis Ferguson he's not quite got the backside of John McGinn but you know who does <laughs> uh that, that was tighter than 15 minutes thank you for that Graham uh Lewis Ferguson an uh a likely hero maybe for Bologna an unlikely hero for AC Milan who yeah uh, with this draw against Inter uh, for Bologna, that means Inter drop points, which means Milan go top of the table. I'm going to say unlikely heroes across the board for Milan, starting with Ferguson, but then Pulisic uh, getting the winner off of an assist from Yunus Musa. Definitely no handball involved. Don't check the tape any longer, or maybe that gets <laughs> turned back. And then the most unlikeliest of heroes, Olivier Giroud in goal, where you could briefly buy his jersey as a goalkeeper, but they have now sold out the Milan store because... Giroud did things in goal. He made saves. He yeah. looked okay. Uh, and largely because, by all accounts, he is taller than Pulisic, who volunteered to go in goal, but was told, nah, we'll put the big guy in and see what happens. And what <laughs> happened is he made some saves and saw this game out. 
Yeah, I, I personally wouldn't be risking a face that handsome by playing in goal, but you know, there you go. Oli Giroud stepped up. I, I, I majored the, the, the newsletter today on Giroud, the goalkeeper, because I, I just love everything about it. As you say, Taylor, the fact that he actually makes saves, he actually does something. So he makes a, a big save in like the, was it like the seventh minute of, of stoppage time? Yeah. So Mike Magnon, he gets sent off in the fifth minute. AC Milan have used all their subs. They've made five substitutions. They can't put a goalkeeper on. So that's how Giroud ends up in, in, in goal. And yeah, he makes a save to secure the bag for AC Milan. He has to come out. I love that it's kind of like an unconventional save that you wouldn't really see yeah. a goalkeeper use that technique for. It is just purely about getting the ball away from the opposition uh, Genoa player. But yeah, finally, we can talk about Oli Giroud and John O'Shea in the same breath. I've been waiting my whole uh, my whole life for that. Also just a really strange game in that you get both goalkeepers sent off. Uh, Genoa, yeah. though, with uh, substitution remaining, so they didn't have to put in a random outfield player. But Giroud does well, makes the save. Credit to Milan. And really, it's a good goal from Pulisic. It's good control. Maybe a slight question as to handball, as I already said. But then he swivels, he hits the volley, uh, and, and gets that win for them. So that was a very uh, happy time for American fans watching. Speaking of happy times for Americans, we can talk about the Bundesliga for a second, uh, where we had Joe Scally hitting a screamer, a nice sort of uh, settled control. Then he takes a touch, then he hits from a good 25 yards out, thereabouts, puts it in the back corner, uh, gets a little bit of a, a flick from the goalkeeper along the way, but it's a great hit uh, as he equalizes for Borussia Mönchengladbach, who are not having a particularly strong season. Uh, they drew 2-2 with Mainz, and that goal from Scali was the equalizer. Uh, and then over in Dortmund, we had Dortmund 4, Union Berlin 2, uh, Brendan Aronson coming on as a substitute and doing Brendan Aronson things, Gio Reyna coming on as a substitute and making people very excited slash cautiously optimistic slash tense ahead of his uh, his return to the U.S. men's national team. Graham, this was a very strange game, and for you it sounds like strange once again because Bonucci is playing for Union Berlin. Yeah, I, I'm still not used to seeing him, pl- first of all, play for Union Berlin, yeah. but then he scores a penalty in this game for that Union Berlin. I'm definitely, I am definitely not used to seeing that, but this is... Uh, this is the world we live in. I'm afraid for, for this game, even though it seemed like it was a, a very exciting match, I only saw one minute and one second right. of this game because, as I mentioned, Sky don't allow you to watch full Bundesliga matches in the UK uh, or rewatch them, I should say. And that's how long the highlight, the Bundesliga highlights package is for this match. Six goals, one minute highlight package. Sure. Okay. But anyway, it seemed like a, it seemed like a whirlwind match and both teams were getting in behind and, and making the most of, of the space and attacking areas. So I guess given what we know about these two teams, even though Dortmund drew a blank in the Champions League during the week, that was, that was uh, to type for both of these teams because that's how they play. Graham, uh, if you need a, an update on things, okay, let me, let me run you through the first 27 minutes or so, uh, making sure he's not involved elsewhere, because Nicholas Fulkrug had himself quite an opening 30 minutes or thereabouts. So it starts with him uh, scoring the opening goal inside of seven minutes. Uh, he is wide open on the header uh, because basically Benucci gets screened by his own man. Fall or Benucci falls down, screens his own man, who then can't uh, close the gap. So Fulkrug is open for the header. That header is saved. Then he scores uh, off the post and in from kickoff. Uh, <laughs> Union go the other way, get a corner kick, uh, which is then flicked on and goes off the head of Fulkrug. So it's, I don't don't think it ends up being given as an own goal, but it definitely touches him last before. 
going in. Uh, then Union uh, get better possession. They start take, to take control of the game. Dortmund are trying uh, to play on the break at that point. Fulkrug is in a battle with uh, Duki, drags him down, foul off the ball, free kick to Union. Union take that free kick, seemingly score uh, when it, it's headed in, and Nicholas Fulkrug was the player closest and lost his man, but that goal is called back uh, because of offside. Fulkrug also has, I believe, a goal of his own call back for offside in there as well. Uh, yeah, it, it was a very strange opening few minutes where he was somehow critical to both teams scoring and not scoring simultaneously. So that was a little bit odd. But even more odd was that Union Berlin, who are not in a very good run of form, uh, go up two to one and looked much more comfortable in this game. Uh, to my understanding, they moved back to a back three, which is what they played all last season. They've tried to move to a back four this year. Uh, but in that back three, they're able to clog the middle, but then still have presence out wide. Dortmund kept getting stretched. Dortmund really did not look comfortable at all in the first half, and it was a lot of direct play. It was a lot of just sort of looking for full Krug to hold it up and, and knock it down. And it's a credit to Eden Terzic that, uh, to my mind, he makes some big changes in that second half. He makes some critical substitutions, but it also seemed to me that he changed the actual shape of the team as well. They seemed to mirror that back three uh, that Union were, were in with uh, Emre Jean dropping much, much deeper in between uh, Schlosserbeck and Hummels. I think that is a feature of Dortmund's game pretty consistently, but in that second half, it was much, much more present. And then also, Eden Terzic brings on Julian Brandt to start the second half, and Brandt uh, is critical in the ninja clearance to start the counterattack that he then finishes with a great goal, courtesy of a nice dribble from Marco uh, Royce. And from that point on, it's all Dortmund that uh, they, they had previously, uh, uh, excuse me, that was the go-ahead goal because Schlauterbeck had the like 30-yard rip out of nowhere. Totally yeah. unexpected shot for a center back. Uh, Rearson adds one more, and it's a very good win for Dortmund uh, and a very concerning loss for Union, who, as I said, are not in a particularly good run of form. They've lost... Their last five games, uh, two of those obviously in the Champions League, but all the same, not where they expected to be. Presently, 13th in the table with yeah. six points from seven games. It's rare that you get a player who scores a goal that you could describe by their name. Like, that was an absolute slaughter bit yes, of a shot. <laughs> well said. Well said. It's a, it's a ridiculous hit, and it's one of those that's helped by... First of all, yeah, he slaughterbacks it really well. Uh, and then it's helped by the goalkeeper sort of diving backwards and getting hands to it, but them not being strong enough to push it wide of goal. So then it just goes further into the top corner perfectly, and it just makes it look like it was an absolute rocket that could not be denied. So well done to Schlotterbeck for slaughterbacking. Well done to Dortmund for the win. Uh, less well done over in Major League Soccer to Inter Miami, who are officially out of the playoffs. Graham, have you returned all your tickets that you had to see Messi's uh, playoff games? <laughs> I think Ryan bought them all to see for, to see uh, Charlotte against Inter Miami. Yeah, in, in the end for Inter Miami, they just couldn't undo the damage Phil Neville did to them in the first half of the season. We, we finally have an answer to the age-old scientific question, can one Messi make up for one Phil Neville? The answer is no, it cannot. There, there was just too much for Inter Miami to do from... Where they started from, um, I think the the Messi injury, of course, was the real killer mm-hmm. for them. And, and who knows where they would have been if he 
had continued after the what the US Open. Oh, he doesn't play the US Open Cup final. What's what would have been his last game? Like an MLS game before yeah, the US Open so. Cup final. Um, so maybe they they might have been able to maintain the 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 momentum. Of course, he makes his return in the second half of of this match. They lose one 0 to to FC Cincinnati. That is the result that knocks him out of contention. Finally, even though he's on the pitch, you you can tell he's not quite there in terms of his fitness and his sharpness. I think that was a bit of a desperation move from Inter Miami just to even even from an emotional point of view, just getting the crowd up and getting him back involved, maybe there's a knock-on effect there, but unfortunately for Miami, there wasn't that effect. But I, I said that last uh, this last week that uh, last week in, in, in one of the shows, um, Inter Miami not making the playoffs this year, I think, is a good thing for MLS. Mm. I, I'm not convinced that Messi taking the worst team in the league to MLS Cup in his first six months mm. would have really helped MLS's brand image. And of course, we had that, initial discussion of is Messi making MLS look stupid or low quality and my argument at that point was well he's done that in every single league he's 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 played in there is a line though like if he if if you take the worst team in the league to the championship within six months that that maybe isn't a great look and of course this way MLS they can stretch out the narrative a little bit more into next season they can keep the interest high so actually I think this is probably a good thing if we're looking through the prism of the the whole league and Messi of course is now going to have a four-month break between now and the start of the Crazy. 2024 season which is completely unprecedented for him um I can't imagine he's had a one-month break very often over the, over the last like 10 years or something like that so his body should in theory be in a better place come February next year as long as he stays away from the cereal aisle in Publix um then <laughs> it'll be all good for him I did read a story this morning about uh about Barcelona maybe being interested in a loan deal which would not be ideal for Inter Miami. We haven't seen one of them in, in MLS for a while where a star player goes to Europe on a, on a on a loan deal. It used to be every single year, you know, Beckham going to Milan or PSG or Robbie Keane going to the Premier League or whatever. It hasn't happened in a little while, but I wouldn't completely rule out that possibility. Yeah, I hope he, he takes a little bit of a break. He won't get one necessarily right away. Uh, he has been called up by Argentina despite that injury. I don't know if that will actually happen, if they're just bringing him in to see how he is or to just keep him in camp as that veteran presence. But either way, uh, he'll play for Argentina. Uh, meantime, the playoff race remains hot, I guess. Is that what we're calling it? Where like the bottom <laughs> four teams are all still somehow eligible. Uh, but DC United are in the final playoff spot at present, but they've played all of their games. Uh, they're on 40 points. But the Red Bulls, Chicago, Charlotte, uh, and even, I believe, NYCFC uh, all have a shot at making that final playoff spot. Uh, for DC United, it feels like they have decided they won't be making the playoffs, so there won't be much else to play for because Wayne Rooney is out at DC United. Uh, not a move I saw coming, but also not a move I'm particularly surprised by. Rooney says he will go back yeah. to England with nothing on, no set plans of any kind, though there are pretty strong rumors that he will take over yeah. for Birmingham City, uh, which is a bit confusing itself, Graham. Yeah, I have a feeling that Rooney will be announced tomorrow as Birmingham City's yeah. new manager. It feels like that's the direction of of, uh, of travel. Like, Birmingham City. It's like in his exit interview at DC United, he's like, "Yeah, no, I have no plans." Like he's actively putting on a Birmingham City polo. <laughs> like, no, I'm just going back. We'll see what happens. I am flying straight to the Midlands. There's nothing to read into that at all. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I feel like that's maybe where we're moving. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think he's going to end up at uh, St Andrews by the end of the week, certainly. Um, not too surprising, I guess, that it hasn't worked out for him at DC United, given that they are a 
bit of a mess of a club, is it fair to say, yes. Taylor? Am I being a little <laughs> I th- too I harsh think, I think there? you're being unfair in saying it's only a bit of a mess. That's the only thing that right. maybe you're off okay. on. Yeah. I'd say yeah. full on And of mess. course, yeah, Messi, um, Messi, what am I talking about? Rooney's family never moved over with him. Colleen famously hates America or something I think like hate, that. I, I think hates Washington. Yeah, for sure. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, it always felt like a, a bit of a temporary arrangement. It never felt like he was going to be there for like five seasons and build something long lasting. Um, the thing about Rooney is I, I still don't really know if he's a good manager yep. or not because he's coached two clubs who were extremely dysfunctional in Derby County and then DC United, where judging him has been very, very hard. Um, so, yeah, when he takes that Birmingham City job, it, it kind of feels like starting from scratch for him because he hasn't really had a club where no. he's been allowed to impose any of his own ideas properly anyway. It properly would be the thing there, right? Because, yeah, there's no GM at DC United uh, this season, so he's given more input on... Uh, trades and transfers but I think while he's also trying to kind of crisis manage a club who don't really spend their resources particularly well and don't have that deep of a squad or that strong of a squad I think you're asking him to do a lot I don't think he was done many favors by DC United that is a club that is I want to say the worst run club in Major League Soccer I mean there are some other TFC nominees hold my beer yeah but even TFC has like ambition. They bring in big name international players. They brought in a a proven manager in Major League Soccer. It has not worked out this season for myriad reasons, but there is still at least ambition there. With DC United, it feels like the ambition was, hey, we build Audi Field that's more or less a functional stadium. <laughs> what do you want? You're welcome. You've no. got a seat to sit in. Sort of. <laughs> it is directly in the sun, and unless it's raining, in which case there will be no rain cover. But you are technically inside if you walk into the like paved asphalt corridor that is the lower level. It's a weird place, Graham. It's a weird place. And I, I do not love the way things are at DC United. Uh, there were some rumors that there would be a significant fan protest uh, in the offseason and I think that would be deserved for DC United but not for you Graham Ruffin no protest for you because you have done your job magnificently uh, in in your role as watching all of the many 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 games yeah. and remembering them as best you can I would say you've, you've done an A plus job Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Watching 11 games over the weekend was what I did instead of running a marathon in Chicago. Like I, f- I felt really good about myself um, over the weekend until I then watched on the TSS Patreon Ryan complete a marathon on one Achilles um, during a weekend in which I complained about the pie kiosk being shut at a football match that I went to. So if ever there was a weekend to sum up the priorities of the TSS co-host, that was it right there. I also saw that Joe t- uh, tweeted that he did, he'd had fish and chips twice in 12 hours in Dublin, See. and uh, I've never felt more proud of Mr. Lowry. <laughs> Joe doing big things, Graham doing big things. Ryan, uh, I don't know for sure that he didn't just book a cab and then drive to the finish line and jump out. We can't <laughs> know that for sure. So right now, I'm not sure he fully ran that marathon, Graham, and I think that's probably <laughs> where we should leave it. Ryan, if you're listening, uh, there will be no uh, opportunity for you to refute that claim. Graham Ruffin, thank you again, my friend. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, we will be back tomorrow. That is difficult to say in uh, short order. It'll be myself and Joe Lowry looking at the upcoming international window for the United States, uh, previewing their opponents, looking at the roster, answering some questions about that team. All that good stuff tomorrow. Until then, talk to you soon.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.